right, so last week, as we finished up chapter 12, if you were with us last week, you know that we saw Jesus conclude his public ministry to the people. This week, as we change gears and we go into chapter 13, we're gonna see Jesus and how he began his private ministry to his disciples, okay? And so John chapters one through 12, all about the public ministry of Jesus to the people. Now, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, that's his private ministry to the disciples. And of course, 18, 19, 20, 21 is how he secured um, our redemption through his death, burial, resurrection, and there's also some post-resurrection appearances at the very end of John. Okay, so before I get into chapter 13, what day is it in our Bibles? And the answer is, it's Thursday. Specifically, it's Thursday evening of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Many people around the world, they call this Holy Week. And so the Lord was with his disciples in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, and ladies and gentlemen, he is just hours away from volunteering, uh, voluntarily sacrificing himself as the Passover lamb who pays, who paid for the sins of the world. And so he knew that his hour was approaching fast. He knew that his time was limited. And so what did Jesus choose to do? Right here, right now in our Bible. He chose to make good use of the little time that he had by pouring into his disciples. The next five chapters in John, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it's all about the private ministry of Jesus uh, to his disciples. Okay, okay, so regarding that private ministry, you need to know that today in chapter 13, he's gonna give his disciples an object lesson, but then in chapters 14 through 16, he's gonna give them a verbal lesson, and then in chapter 17, he's gonna close out his time with them with a very special prayer. We call it the high priestly prayer, where he's gonna pray for his disciples, and get this, believe it or not, he's gonna pray for you as well in John chapter 17. Now, I know some of you are excited about the second line down. You're excited about the verbal lesson that Jesus is gonna give to his disciples called the upper room discourse, but you need to know that before Jesus said something, one line up, he determined that he needed to do something. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, actions speak louder than words. Okay, so before he gives them the upper room discourse in chapters 14, 15, and 16, in chapter 13, Jesus is gonna do something so impactful, the disciples will never forget it. For the rest of their lives, the disciples are gonna look back at what we're gonna study today, and they're gonna think, man, you remember what Jesus did? How could I ever forget it? Well, we need to have a servant's heart just like our Lord. All right, so right now, if you're looking at John 13, verse one, can you say amen so I know you're there? So here we go. If you're visiting with us, this is what we do. Not motivational talks. Bible study. John chapter 13, verse one. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, 
when the, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So there's your object lesson, and now let's break it down. Okay, so go back to verse one, just the first phrase. We'll see what time it is in the Bible. It says, now before the feast of Passover. So regarding the chronology of this monumental week in human history, you need to know this. You need to know that the day of Passover, according to our calendars, fell on Friday, April 3rd, A.D. 33. That corresponds to the Jewish month Nisan, specifically the 15th day of Nisan, as prescribed by the book of Exodus regarding when to celebrate the day of Passover. Now, I've told you a thousand times, there's lots of good scholars that think this all happened in A.D. 30. Um, I would beg to differ. I think when you really study it, you weigh everything out. Friday, April 3rd, A.D. 33. Now, before I explain the next three lines, here's what you need to know. When, let me ask you a question. When do we, Americans, or people around the world right now, depending on, obviously, their culture, but when do most people start their day? In the morning, right? Alarm goes off, depending on what time you get up. Maybe sun's coming up, coming up right? And it's like, it's a new day. The Jews didn't do that. <laughs> the Jews started their day at, after sundown. And so their day, the Jewish day, went from sundown to sundown. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, line number one, the day of Passover, it, for the Jews, it actually started on Thursday evening after sundown on April 2nd, according to our calendars. And it extended all the way until Friday after sundown. Now, do you guys, if, you, if you're with me, say amen there. And so the foot washing, the Last Supper, the crucifixion, all happened on the day of Passover, Okay, that means that the foot washing that Jesus performed for his disciples, right, right before they ate the, fast, the, the Passover feast, that happened on the day of Passover, and of course, that Passover feast is called the Last Supper, which leads us to the next line. The Last Supper, that occurred on Thursday evening after sundown in the upper room. And then, of course, the crucifixion happened on Friday from 9 to 3, Still the day of Passover, which is very fitting because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ is our Paschal Lamb. Christ is our Passover Lamb. And so look at verse 1 again now that we know what time it is. Now before the feast of Passover, before they ate the meal, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved agapao in the Greek, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved, same word, agapao, them to the end. Now, we got to define love here 
And man, what I'm about to say is, is something that our culture really, really, really needs to hear. All of us need to hear it. All right, so the word love in this, in this verse, agapao, is not just implying that Jesus had fond feelings for his disciples. It included that, but it was way more than that. In fact, if you go to blueletterbible.com, if you click on um, John chapter 13, verse one, and you do the Greek study of the word, you're gonna see that agapao does include, to a certain level, feelings, fond feelings. We all know what, what it means to have fond feelings toward certain people in our lives. But ladies and gentlemen, those emotions, as beautiful as they are, fail to give us the full meaning of love. All right, so what is love? Please do not let the culture define love for you. Don't do that. Who in the world are you listening to if you're listening to the culture? Right? That's not where we get our definitions for these important things. The culture will tell you, you've seen it on the shirts, right? Love is love. That's not love. It is not love. Okay, so what is love? Well, we start with 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Here it is. You ready for this? God is love. God is love. All right, so in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, help me out, was God. And then the word became flesh. Wow, God became flesh. God became a human being and dwelt among us. What's his name? You tell me. Jesus. Jesus is God. God is love. Therefore, Jesus is love. And so I contend that we need to get our definition of love by looking at the life of Jesus Christ. Pastor Will said it earlier today, he's been saying it all weekend, that when you come to Calvary, we're gonna tell you about Jesus. We're gonna make a big deal about Jesus. We're gonna tell you to build your lives on Jesus. We're gonna ask you to put Jesus, number one, in your life. That's what we do here, okay? And so what is love? Well. When you look at the life of Jesus, what he desires for us, and then what he did for us, this definition right here surfaces. True love is desiring what is good. Now, I gotta time you out right there. Okay, so none of what I'm gonna say here for the next two minutes is in my notes, but I don't know why God's got me saying things this weekend that's not in my notes, okay? All right, so desiring what is good. Everybody say the word good. good. All right, so where do we get our understanding of what is good? And what is bad? What is right and what is wrong? Where does the culture get it? The culture gets it from themselves, how they feel, right? The culture wants you and me to affirm all of their feelings, no matter what they are. Sorry, we can't do that. We just can't. You say, that's unloving. No, 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 that's the most loving thing ever. Why? Because most of our feelings, ladies and gentlemen, don't you know most of our emotions come from how we think and sometimes what we're thinking is a lie? Okay, so, so think through this with me. Where do we get our definition of what is good? We get it from two places, actually. We get it from natural law, which, by the way, our founding fathers knew all about that. It's kind of a lost concept today. Um, if you don't know what natural law means, I encourage you to go to gotquestions.org. It's a big article, great article. It'll explain to you what natural law is. In a nutshell, 
it's that moral law that God has impressed it upon every single person's heart, Romans chapter two, and then our conscience feels bad when we violate it. Problem is we sin against our conscience a lot. Okay, and so everybody knows, here's an example of natural law, moral law. Everybody knows killing six million Jews is wrong. You don't need a Bible for that. Everybody knows that if your mother's 105 years old and she's rich and you want her inheritance and you decide she's still alive, I can't believe this, I think I'll kill her. Everybody knows that's wrong whether you have a Bible or not. You guys follow what I'm saying? It's the natural law, it's the moral law. But how many of you guys know we're all fallen human beings? Okay, therefore, not just natural law, but more importantly, where do we get our definition of good? We get it from the revealed law of God, specific revelation, the scriptures. Now, of course, you have to rightly handle the word of truth, and I'm not, not talking about going back to Leviticus and looking at dietary laws and then defining good. We're under the new covenant, okay, so that's a whole number, another sermon, but we get the idea of good from God, not our culture, all right? So what is love? Desiring what is good for another person and then performing an action or actions to ensure that good. Can I just say, Christians, it's time for us to stand up in love. Can I just say for a second, and this is not in the notes either, but, but we should all be very tired with the culture telling us, stop imposing your Christian morality on me. Okay, you know why? You know why we should be up to here with that? Because ladies and gentlemen, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And all legislation is somebody imposing their idea of what's right and wrong on somebody else. And so if I say that life begins at conception and that taking that life after conception called abortion is murder, and you say that that's your, just your Christian morality, well, excuse me, you are imposing your pagan morality on me, telling me that I can kill the kid. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? What's well, good for the goose is good for the gander. And so we don't whisper, we don't, Christianity isn't some kind of disease that we hide, no. We stand up and we say this is wrong. According to natural law, it's wrong. According to revealed law, it is wrong. And I know I always have to say this. Believe me, I've been told. And so I am always careful to say, ladies, if you've had an abortion, you need to know that God loves you, let his kindness lead you to repentance, and if you'll repent, he will embrace you with open arms, and it'll be like you never even had an abortion because that's what God does, he washes away your sin. That's the good God that we have. And so love is desiring what is good. That's not our definition, it's God's definition for another person, and then performing an action or actions to ensure that good. And so that right there does involve fond feelings at a certain level, but what is most important is not our feelings, it's our action. Feelings come and go. Feelings cannot be depended upon. Action is where it's at. Verse one now says that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. What does that mean? That means that he desired what was good for his disciples and then he performed certain actions to ensure that good. Husband, when you talk about loving your wife, you need to desire what is good for her and then you need to perform actions to ensure that good. Same thing with the wives to the husbands, etc., etc. And so what good did Jesus desire for the disciples and for us? Our salvation, 
That's the good that Christ desired. Our salvation from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin. God's desire for us is that we would be saved. Yes, from the penalty of sin so we can go to heaven, amen, but also for the, from the power of sin during this life and also the presence of sin. In other words, his desire is the good of justification and sanctification and glorification for us. Okay, so what action did Jesus perform to ensure that good? Here it is. He gave his life on the cross for you and me and he died and he rose again. He put his love in action. He put some feet to it. John uh, chapter 15 says this, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. That, ladies and gentlemen, is true love. That is love to the utmost. He gave his life on the cross. Now, you you know the people who say that's no big deal? is the people that think that they're all that. The people that think that that's no big deal are people who think I'm good enough to go to heaven on my own if there is a heaven. The people who don't think that 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 means anything are people who don't even realize that they're lost sinners in need of a savior. Ladies and gentlemen, why in the world did Jesus die on the cross Now, if you don't know how to answer that question, you need to get saved. Honestly, if you don't know how to answer the question, why did Jesus die on the cross, you need to get saved. Because, and this is why I'm against this real quick evangelism, just get them to pray. No, you need to understand the gospel. You cannot get saved until you realize you're lost. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. That's physical death and eternal death. Separation from God forever. That's a reality. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Here's why. Because God is a just judge. That's one of his attributes. And part of the bad English, it ain't changing. That means God doesn't wink at sin. He is a just judge. He cannot change himself. That's who he is. So all sin, ladies and gentlemen, has to be paid for. How many of you are glad that God is love? Right? So here's what he did. He said, I don't want these people to die and go to hell and pay for their own sins. I'll go rescue them. And Jesus Christ, the God-man, hung on the cross and he absorbed the wrath of God against our sins, thus satisfying the divine wrath against sin and also satisfying God's eternal love for you and I, both of those kissed on the cross. That is the gospel. Have you received that? Have you realized I'm lost? I am gonna go to hell without Jesus Christ and accepting his payment as my payment for my sins and turning him to him in repentance and faith. And so I always try to throw it in there every service, but I really want you guys to hear the gospel. That's why he gave his life for you. Now look at verse two. It says, during supper, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going, look at this, back to God, not to God for the first time. No, 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 no. Back to God. How many of you guys believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity? Oh, I was really hoping for more to say amen there. The Jesus of the cults is not the true Jesus, and he cannot save. Jesus was not created. He's the creator. So this creator rose from supper. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water in the basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. All right, so in New Testament times, if you're new to the Bible, you need to know that they didn't have the luxury of indoor plumbing like we have today. So if somebody wanted to get clean, what did they do? They can't go take a shower in the next room, so they put on their sandals and they went down to the river. And they jumped in, cleansed themselves all over, put back on their sandals, and they walked back home. Now as they're walking back home, their body's still clean, but because they're wearing open-toed sandals, what part of their body now got dirty? Their feet. So at most homes during that day, there's a basin and there's a water jug where they could get their feet washed before entering into the home because everybody knows mama don't want those dirty feet in the home. Now, if someone came over for dinner, it was usually the job of a servant. In fact, it was the job of a servant to wash the feet of the guest. Some commentaries I read says the lowest servant. Okay, that means if you're gonna have people over for dinner and you live in the first century in that culture, you would hire a servant and the servant would stand at the door with a towel and as the guests came in, the servant would stoop down really low and the person would, would you know, sit and they would wash their feet and then they could come and have dinner. That's the culture that we're talking about here. Well, on that Thursday evening, when all the disciples walked into that upper room, they saw the basin and the pitcher of water, but they didn't see a servant to wash their feet. So you know what these guys did, ladies and gentlemen, all 12 of them? Here's, try to go back 2,000 years, try to picture it in your mind. There's Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, hey, what's up, man, Passover, woo, Passover meal, yes. They walk into the upper room, they look, and they see the basin and the water jug, and guess what they do? They just keep on walking. Now, I'm sure all of them, except for maybe Judas, would have loved to have washed Jesus' feet. But if they wash Jesus' feet, then they're on the hook to wash everybody's feet, and there's no way they're gonna wash each other's feet. Why? Because that's so below them. Ladies and gentlemen, what you gotta understand as we approach John 13 is that in that culture, the social status was you needed to make sure you're at the top of the pecking order. So in everybody's mind, as they're walking in, that's the job of a servant. There's no way I'm gonna wash Peter's feet. Are you kidding me? I need to stay at the top of the pecking order. And so they walked on by. And so because of their enormous egos and their unwillingness to serve, all the disciples went to the Passover meal with dirty feet. That probably smelled a little funky as well. Now what famous dinner was this? What do we Christians call it? The Last Supper. So when you think about the Last Supper, most of you think about Leonardo da Vinci's painting, right? 
Can I tell you that's not what it looked like? <laughs> At all. Nothing could be further from the truth there. I'm just gonna point out two things. There's probably more than that that's wrong with this picture. But number one, it would not have been a high table. That table is way too high for that time in that culture. But number, number two, have you noticed this? Why are they all on one side? It's like they're posing for Leonardo's painting. <laughs> right? No, 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 not at all. What did the Last Supper actually look like? Well, the table would have been a triclinium, which was a U-shaped table that was very low to the ground. Therefore, instead of sitting on chairs around the table, the disciples and Jesus would have been reclining on mats around the table. Okay, and I, I acted it out a couple weeks ago for you guys on the stage. I'm not gonna do that again. Because personally, you know, I'm actually glad that we have Western tables with big chairs right now. Because the older I get, here's what I know. Once I'm on the floor, it's getting harder to get back up. Okay, and so nonetheless, that's what the Last Supper looked like, um, not Da Vinci's painting. Now, as I said earlier, the disciples' feet stunk that night. But that's not the only thing that stunk. Their attitudes stunk as well. You say, where do you get that from? Well, it's very important when you're studying the Gospels that you have all four of them laid out. So you can look at the various parallel passages to see the whole idea of what was going on. Check out what Luke tells us in his parallel passage about what happened that night. It says that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded the greatest. Can you guys believe this? They actually started arguing during the Last Supper. Now, if they would have known, hey, Andrew, Peter, 2,000 years from now, there's gonna be a bunch of people talking about this in a place called Port St. Lucie. So maybe we need to bite our tongues and stop arguing. They had no idea, right, that the Last Supper was gonna be this monumental thing. If they would have, they would not have been arguing. I think they would have bit their tongues till their tongues bled. But nonetheless, they don't know, and so they're just doing what they do. They're going at it. By the way, did you notice they went at it more before Pentecost than after Pentecost? See, the Holy Spirit will change your heart. All that arguing that you do in your home, I think you need a Pentecost. And by the way, they didn't get saved at Pentecost. They got filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then the fruit of the Spirit started coming out, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness and self-control. If you want peace in your home, you need to not just have the Holy Spirit, he needs to have you. None of that was in the notes either. That's, that's kind of something that I think somebody needs. If you're arguing and arguing and arguing and your home is not, listen, your home needs to be a place of peace and rest and joy and love, not arguing. Man, just stop, please stop. Get the Holy Spirit working in your home. Come talk to us after the service. We'd love to pray with you about that. But you need peace in your home. You need peace in your marriage. You need peace with the relationships with your kids. And I need to find out where I'm at in my notes. <laughs> yeah, so they're arguing at the Last Supper. Okay, so picture it, go back 2,000 years. They're actually there, right, before they ate the Passover meal, and they're like, I'm the greatest. No, you're not. Jesus relies on me more than you. He does not give me a break. <clears throat> now, why were they arguing about who's the greatest? <clears throat> they're arguing because they think that Jesus, the son of David, is gonna usher in the Davidic kingdom right then. 
And they know that Jesus, the son of David, needs some good men to make up his administration. And so they're arguing about what title am I gonna have? Well, I'm better than you. No, you're not, I'm better than you. He relies on me more than you. And so they're vying for position. They're vying for titles in the upper room during the Last Supper. And so you have this competitive spirit of pride, this competitive spirit of arrogance, until something stunning happened. Jesus, in the midst of all this, gets up from his mat, takes off his outer garment, takes a towel, wraps it around him, just like a slave would, a servant would, and he goes to the door, and what does he do? He pours the water into the basin, and he brings it, and to their shock and embarrassment, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I'm the greatest. No, I am. Give me a break. Whoa, what's Jesus doing? Why is he going over to the door and getting water? Why is he bringing that water to us? And you need to know that that upper room became very quiet and their faces became very red with embarrassment as the king of glory got down and did for them what they really should have done for each other at the beginning of the evening. And so the disciples showed how insecure they were by vying for a title, right? Ladies and gentlemen, why do some people criticize other people? It's pride, yeah, but what does it do inside of them? Yeah. It makes them feel better about themselves. What do you call that? Insecurity. So the reason they're vying for a title is because they're insecure. But Jesus was secure in who he was, and so he went and got a towel. Are you guys following me here? And it leads you to your next point, if you're taking notes, and that is that the insecure are into titles, the secure are into towels. The disciples' view of themselves, their self-worth, their self-value, what they thought about themselves, it was all based, sadly, in the social status of the day. They were getting their definitions from the culture. And what did the culture tell them? The culture sadly told them that there are some people that have more value and more worth than other people. And so if you have a certain amount of money or if you have a certain position, then you're better than this person who doesn't have the money and doesn't have the position. And so they based who's better than others based on power, position, and their pocketbooks, but Jesus' view of himself was not skewed by that faulty cultural thinking. And how many of you guys know nothing's changed in our culture today? Nothing's changed at all. What do we do, right? The limo pulls up, the superstar Hollywood um, actor comes out and is like, Can I have your autograph, please? Ladies and gentlemen, you have the same worth as they do. You have the same value as they do. Why are you idolizing people? 
sports stars, movie stars, music artists, whatever, and we put them way up here, and we think we're down here. Ladies and gentlemen, pardon the bad English, but all y'all have been made in the image of God. Everybody. I don't care, I'm, I'm, listen, and I'm not gonna back down from this because I've gotten flack for this. I'm not backing down from this right here. And that is that there is a difference between worth and unworthiness. We are all made in the image of God. Therefore, all people breathing air on planet Earth, I don't care if you're redeemed or un unredeemed. I don't care what your political position is, your skin color is. I don't care what your sexual preference is. I don't care about you know, what you like or you don't like. Everybody has been made in the image of God. Therefore, everybody's worth is priceless, period. Period. There is a view within Christianity that says, no, you get all your worth from Christ if you're redeemed. So you're telling me that unredeemed people are worthless? I'm running from that. And that's why you gotta differentiate between worth and, what, and, and unworthiness, or, or worthless and unworthy. Those two are two different terms. You guys follow me here? None of this is in the notes either. Oh my goodness. Football's coming, and I'm just like fighting against it. So, okay, so unworthy, worthless, two different things. Nobody's worthless. Nobody's worthless. Stop looking down your nose at them. Stop yelling at them. Try humbling yourself, respecting them, and serving them. Maybe they'll listen to you. But all of us are unworthy. We're sinners in need of a savior. Yes, that's the gospel. I'm not gonna back down from that either. And so, when you think through this, all the disciples, right, the, they're getting their view of the pecking order from the social standings of the day. Jesus wasn't skewed by that. Look at what Jesus, look at verse three. It says in verse three that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, or given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and he was going back to God, rose from supper, and he served. So the Lord knew exactly who he was, and he was secure in his identity, so it was a joy for him to serve others. Do you know who you are? Do you know your identity? Do you really know your worth and your value? Again, I'll say it. If you're saved or not saved, atheist or agnostic or believer here, you're priceless before God. You're made in his image. The animals are not like that, by the way. We are. But now listen, I'm talking to Christians now. If you've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, everybody go ahead and turn real quick to Ephesians chapter one, but I wanna show you who you are, Christian, in Jesus Christ. Okay, and so Ephesians chapter one, verse three, we're talking about our identity in Jesus Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, shout out the next two words, blessed us. I got that circled in my Bible. You know why? Because I'm blessed. Blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he, verse four, chose us. I got that circled too. You know why? Because I know that in Christ I'm blessed and I'm chosen. And not just that. He chose me before the foundation of the world. You too, if you know Christ. 
and verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. I got that circle too. So Christian, you and I, we're blessed, we're chosen, and we've been adopted as well. And not just that, you jump down to verse 7, and in him we have redemption. I got that circle too. Through his blood. And we have forgiveness. I got forgiveness circled. To an inheritance. Verse 11. And we're predestined in verse 11. I got all that circled. And so I go over this and over this and over this and over this in my mind so that I know who I am in Jesus Christ. And you know what what this does for me? This gives me security. Because ladies and gentlemen, I do not get my security based on what people say about me. I get my security based on what God has said about me. That's where I get it. And that's where you need to get it too. And so guess what? That means that if I were somehow elected as the president of the United States, no thank you anyway, guess what? I would still be all those things I got circled. But if I choose today to go with Lee Almeida down to Fort Pierce and deliver food to low-income people and serve them, guess what? I am still blessed, chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, an heir of heaven, predestined, sealed, saved, and I'm seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. Why? Because your identity, your identity does not change even though your position or your posture may change. I'm talking about having security. I'm talking about having real security today. Then you can serve, and you can serve like Jesus with joy. And so, man, get yourself freed up to stoop down and serve others. And let that be based on your security that you have in Jesus Christ. This is why, by the way, not in the notes, but this is why slavery is such an evil. Because ladies and gentlemen, think about this for a moment. There was actually a long period in human history where some people thought they were better than other people, so they went over to Africa, they kidnapped them from their family, threw them in the bottom of a boat in chains, took them over to some plantation, and had a whip and say, get to work or you're gonna be whipped. Can I just throw up right now? That's evil. That's wrong. That's unthinkable evil, okay? So there is no, I'm better than you. No, 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 no. This is what it looks like. Now, we go to verse six, and it says in verse six, John 13, verse six, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. You'll get the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter, and then everything's gonna make sense. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, wash me all over. I would love to hang out with Peter for a day. That would just be so much fun. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. You see that? Completely clean. You are clean. In other words, Peter was saved right here. He was already saved. But not every one of you. Who's he talking about at the end of verse 10? 
Judas. Ladies and gentlemen, Judas never got saved. He never was saved. I, I know some of you thought Judas was saved and then he lost his salvation. No, 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 no. Some of you may even think he's in heaven right now. Please. The Old Testament says he's in hell. And by the way, God did not predetermine that hell for him. He made the choice. Okay, and so what I want you to understand is that you can be religious, you can hang out with Christians, you can come to church and still be lost. Judas was never saved. What does that mean? Well, Jesus, at the, at the end of time, at the judgment, there's gonna be a bunch of religious people that walk up to him. Lord, didn't we do this, that, and the other? What's Jesus gonna say? I never knew you. He's, he, he's not gonna say, you know, I knew you for a little while because you got saved but then you lost your salvation and then I didn't know you. But then you got saved again and I knew you, but then you lost it again, you blew it, and I didn't know you. And then you got saved and I knew, no. I never knew you. Judas was never saved. Religious, yes. Saved, no. Now, back to Peter. When Peter said, Jesus, just wash me all over. And then Jesus says to him, basically, hey, Peter, you already had a bath today, right? And then when you were walking to the upper room in your open-toed sandals, your feet got dirty. And so I don't need to give you a bath, I just need to wash your feet. Let me do this for you. Now does anybody think Jesus really cared about Peter's dirty feet? <laughs> no, 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 this is a metaphor. Washing Peter's feet physically symbolized his need for daily cleansing spiritually. Again, so back to the analogy. When someone back in Bible times needed to take a bath, they went down to the river and they jumped in and they bathed all over. They put their sandals back on, their bodies clean, their feet get feet, and so they washed their feet at the door before going into mama's house. Okay, so what's the analogy to Christianity and to spiritual things? Well, ladies and gentlemen, when someone's going their own way and doing their own thing, living for themselves, and then all of a sudden the Spirit is drawing them and they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they turn to Jesus Christ. By the way, when you turn to Jesus, what are you turning away from? Your sin, and you realize that he paid for your sins on the cross and then he rose again, he died and rose again and you receive him as the savior and the king, the boss of your life. You are bathed. I'm telling you, you are washed. I'm telling you that all your sins, past, present, future, are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you're a child of God. Okay? You're a child of God. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a, left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. But guess what? As we, as believers, walk through this fallen world, what's gonna happen? It's not if it's when we sin. Any perfect people here today? By the way, I love John Wesley. He's in heaven right now, but he taught something that was wrong. It's called entire sanctification, Christian perfection. He actually thought that you could live a holy life and attain sinless perfection on this side of the grave. Sorry, I know myself too well. If it's not sins of commission, it's sins of omission. So what do we do as we're walking through life and our feet get dirty? Do we need to get saved all over again? No, with all due respect, some of you guys are saved, but you're standing up for salvation. You don't need to stand up for salvation at the end of services, you may need to stand up for rededication, but not salvation, because once you're saved, you're always saved. Okay, so we gotta correct your theology here. But you do need to confess your sins daily, like me. Why? 
so we can maintain our sonship or our daughtership? No. I don't even know if daughtership's a word, but anyway, I made it up. No, we do it to restore our fellowship with the Lord. And so when a Christian, Christian sins, right, how do you restore that close fellowship with the Father? John told us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah, fellowship is restored. Praise God. Does that make sense to you guys? I know that goes against what some of you were taught in former churches, but ladies and gentlemen, I know that I know that I know that I know that eternal security is a true doctrine of the New Testament. And if you are not sure, go back and listen to Pastor Will's message a couple months ago. He took the whole message and dealt with it. And you'll get the biblical basis for it. And so now we go to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Can you see him? He's looking at all their faces. Their faces are probably not as red as before, but they're like, wow, he just did something that I'll never forget. But then he says, but guess what? You guys need to do this too. Now you think he meant every year you need to have a ceremony where Pastor Mike washes everybody's feet? <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. He's just saying we all need to serve one another. Of course, I'm willing to wash your feet. Anyway, he says in verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you know them. Is that what it says? Is anybody reading carefully with me? If you know these things, verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. All right, as I wind down, it's time to apply the message. Jesus gives them an example of a servant's heart, right? Do you think the disciples needed this object lesson, yes or no? Yes, they're vying for titles, they're arguing, right? They wanna be applauded, acclaimed. They wanna be adored. Okay, so answer this in your heart of hearts between you and the Lord. Are you striving for status in your life? Do you wanna be the, at the top of the pecking order? Do you want to be admired? Do you want to be applauded? Do you want to be acclaimed? If the answer is yes, you need to know that that attitude is foreign to the scriptures. It's actually birthed in the heart of Lucifer. Because Lucifer said, I will, seven times. But one of them was, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. There it is. Yuck. Enormous ego, and that's why he fell, and Lucifer became Satan. Now, I gotta differentiate and explain. I'm not talking about wanting to strive for excellence or to win for the glory of God. Praise God, that was last week's message. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So for you sports fans, Tim Tebow, you know, I know it happened a long time ago, but what did he do? 
He is a born-again Christian, won two national championships and a Heisman Trophy, and in Tim Tebow fashion, gave all the glory to the Lord. Yes, praise God for that. Okay, so I'm not talking about that. That's a whole different subject. I'm talking about you wanna be applauded, you wanna be acclaimed for yourself. Yuck, it's not right. So give up that empty quest and grab two things. You ready for this? Grab two things. Number one, grab a Bible so you can find out what your identity is in Christ, so you can be secure, and you know your identity will never change no matter what posture that you're in. And then number two, grab a towel and start serving like never before. That's what I wanna encourage you to do. There's three primary places where we can display a servant's heart, at home, at work, and at church. And so I wanna encourage you guys to, if you're married and you have kids, just figure out innovative ways to serve your family at home. Guys, when you come home from work, please don't sit in the lazy boy chair and demand to be served. Don't do that. You say, well, I'm tired, I worked hard. Yeah, we're all tired. Get up and serve your family like Jesus served the disciples in the upper room. Just get up, start serving. I don't feel like it. Grow up, that's adulthood. Welcome to human life. We do things we don't wanna do. So serve. Go to your wife and say, honey, you're making dinner. Man, how can I help you? Now after she has a heart attack, <laughs> figure out how to serve. Hey, I'm not here to play church. I'm here to apply the scriptures to our lives Monday through Sunday. So serve, serve, serve at home. Better than asking your wife, just take the initiative. Set the table, clean out the dishwasher, take out the garbage and do some laundry, guys. Nobody's clapping right now because it's time for application. Man, teach the word, pastor, so I can get this big old head, but now you're applying it. What time is it? I gotta go. Wives, serve your husbands. You say, I'm not sure how. Ask him, you'll make his day. Just ask him, honey, how can I serve you? Hey, parents, I know you serve your kids. That's being a parent. You guys do that to the point of exhaustion. But can I encourage you guys to love your kids? And most of you guys know this. This is not original with me, but how do kids spell love? Time, T-I-M-E. So man, hang out with your kids. Again, I'm tired after work. It's okay. Go out for a walk after dinner. Play ball um, in the evening. Play some video games with your kids. And then, here's my challenge, adults. Beat your kids in video games. <laughs> you say, I could never do that. Yeah, you can. If you get into it, you can have fun. When my kids were growing up, we used to play Crash Bandicoot. And um, those little things, and I would, I would I would get all the way to the finish line and stop right before the finish line and I would wait for one of my daughters to get here and then I would shoot, go right over because I'm not losing. I mean, I don't care. They get their security in from Jesus, not from winning a game. <laughs> Spend time with your kids. Now, I know I'm going over time. I'm sorry, I'm almost done, but please hear me and I'm not bragging right now. Those of you who have been with me 
uh, heard my preaching for over a year, you know I don't talk like this, because it makes me a little uncomfortable. But I don't know who this is for, but I feel compelled to share this with you. My wife and I did one thing right, raising our kids. We had one day a week, we called it the Sabbath, and we did not do any work on that day. All we did is that we had fun with our family. And we refreshed and we recharged with our family. Listen, in those days, we were broke. We didn't have money to go to Disney World all the time. Are you kidding me? So you know what we did? We went to the beach, that's free. Went to the park, that's free. We went to the zoo. You say, that's not free. The one in Jupiter used to be free, you know, with the animals that are all kind of like messed up. (laughs) And so we just, hey, they don't know it's, it's free, hey. That poor owl, oh man, I'm so sorry. Let's pray for the owl right now. Just hang out with your kids. Now, what's the benefit of that? By God's grace, okay, by God's grace, what's the benefit of that? All three of our girls are grown adults in their 20s and 30s. They all have godly husbands that they're married to. Get this, they all crazy, I'm gonna enjoy it while we can, live in Port St. Lucie, and they all go to church here, and they all actually like Stacy and I. Praise God. Praise God. You say, well, it's not like that in my my house. Today's the first day of the rest of your life. Mend some fences, get it right. And man, if you're a a husband or a wife and you got little kids, take that day off. Be a blessing and a servant at work. Every morning, get up and say, Lord, would you please make me a blessing to every single person I come into contact with today? Just show me how I can serve them and then go to work and just be, be open to whatever the Lord does. You, you'll figure out ways to serve. Here's what you don't do. You don't have a prideful attitude at work. You don't look down on people at work. You don't send demeaning emails or texts to people at work. Um, no, 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 that repels people. You don't, you, don't, you don't use people for your own advantage. You don't walk on people as you're climbing the corporate ladder. All of that repels people. Listen, give all that up and just serve people and listen to people and hang out with people at work. And then at church, be a servant here, if this is your church, home. Look at this, Paul, Paul said, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, the pastors and the teachers, why? Why did he give these leaders to the church? To equip the who? Saints. Who are the saints? That football team in New Orleans? Dead people that the church canonized? No, we are all the saints for the work of ministry. So who equips the leaders of the church? Who does the work of ministry? The saints, all y'all, for the building up of the body of Christ. So ladies and gentlemen, if this is your church home, serve. Even if it's once a month, serve. We have opportunities on the weekend, we have opportunities Monday through Friday with admin stuff. But listen, we're thinking, don't hold me to this, but we're thinking about starting a fourth service in February or maybe March. Okay, so listen, we need, we can't do that right now. We're not ready. We need servants in the parking lot, in the foyer, greeting, ushers, creative arts, which includes tech and video and children's ministry workers and safety and security and first impressions and next step, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Pastor Lee has people that he needs during the week and and his team in the admin office over on Midway. But there's a place for you to serve. So if you wanna serve at Calvary, 
here's what I wanna encourage you to do. You go to our website, and then you click on Next Steps, and you scroll down to Serve Team, and there, there is a short video. Now, as I'm preparing this week, the Lord, the Lord said to me, play the video. And my thought immediately was, you know, we, we usually don't do that, and it's really short, but I'm not gonna disobey the Lord. So I don't know who this is for. It's really short, but what Pastor Andrew says here is really impactful. So for whoever this is, check it out. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself, he modeled it for us, what it means to live a life that's about others. As part of the body of Christ, it's not about being a consumer, but rather being a contributor. As our church continues to grow, it's so important that the foundation is strong. And that foundation is our ministry partners. So we encourage you, check out the opportunities and see what God has for you. There it is. So don't be a consumer, be a contributor. Follow the example of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You go to that page, you click on Serve Team Interest Form, you fill out the form, and you start to serve. It's real easy. Church family, we're a family. And in a family, I hope, if you have kids, you're making them do chores. Because everybody pitches in to make it happen. And without our, without, without our ministry partners, there's no way I do what I do. And so Jesus said this, in closing, this is it. If you know these things, blessed are you if you know them. No, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them.